This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's already Wednesday. It's February 17th. I'm Nyla Budin. Here's what we're covering today. Biden's push for more inclusive immigration language. Plus, the perils of long-term unemployment. But first, the power problems in Texas are today's one big thing. More than 4 million Texans woke up yesterday morning without power after winter storms affected more than half the country. These power outages have sparked a political debate about Texas's power grid, namely wind energy. Texas is the largest generator of wind energy in the country. With the freezing cold temperatures, some wind turbines froze, leaving some people, like Tucker Carlson, to blame the power outages on renewable energy. Green energy means a less reliable power grid, period. It means failures like the ones we're seeing now in Texas. Ben Geeman writes the Axios Generate newsletter and is here with a reality check about what's really going on. Hey, Ben. So back to those frozen wind turbines. How much of green powered energy is causing power outages? Is that true? In the main, no, it is not true. That is, those frozen wind turbines that have been getting so much attention are certainly a real thing, but it would be really quite an overstatement and inaccurate to pin the blame for this human disaster and energy system disaster in Texas on renewable energy, on on wind power specifically. There's way more fossil fuel power generation that was knocked offline than wind power that was knocked offline. Do you think this is more than like a situation we saw with the brownouts on the West Coast last year that our electrical grid system isn't prepared for extreme weather? I think that is the connective tissue here. I think the sort of through line there is that extreme weather is something that our grid is not necessarily ready for in different parts of the country, not just Texas and not just California. In fact, we've had problems in in multiple parts of the country. I mean, I think this is immediately on the radar screen of a lot of people. You've had the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, saying that he's launching an investigation into ERCOT, the grid manager. And then you've also had the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is an independent federal agency, announcing that they're going to open an investigation not into only what's going on in Texas, but how kind of big power systems are operating or, as the case may be, not operating during these winter conditions in both the Midwest and the South Central states. So what are you thinking about going forward? So I think certainly you will have some opponents of renewable energy and clean power raising this as a way to say, at the very least, we need more of a yellow light, perhaps, to say that as the country moves more aggressively into renewables, that we need to be very cautious in order to avoid creating some of these or at least adding to some of these reliability problems. But, you know, with these grid situations are very sort of intricate and complex. We're seeing that the electricity system in a lot of parts of the world is at times vulnerable 
vulnerable to extreme weather events. And of course, the kind of overlay to this is, is climate change. Certainly, these types of polar vortex events are related to changes in the climate. I'm, I certainly don't want to get over my skis and say that we know that there is this climate link to what's going on in Texas. But certainly in the main, extreme heat and in certain parts of the country, extreme cold and just more extreme weather in general is something that is going to be a very significant thing that power grid managers and anybody else with a stake in this is going to have to be paying attention to in the months, years and, and decades ahead. Ben Geeman writes Axios's Generate newsletter. In 15 seconds, we're back with a scoop on the Biden administration's new language around immigration. Welcome back to Axios Today. Yesterday, the Biden administration signed a memo encouraging more inclusive language for immigrants, like replacing the word alien with non-citizen. Steph Kite, a politics reporter for Axios, is here with her scoop. Hey, Steph, so what are some of these other language shifts? Hi. So, yeah, there are a couple different shifts. The memo also tells immigration officials to shift from using the term illegal alien to using undocumented non-citizen or an undocumented individual. and also changes the word assimilation to integration or civic integration. What kind of reaction are these changes getting? A lot of immigration advocates are, you know, very excited about this change. Uh, Many people for a while have been criticizing the use of the word alien just because it doesn't necessarily come with a sense of humanity and real person moving to the U.S. and they prefer other terms. But I've also heard from people who have been critical of the use of non-citizen. And that's from people who are both on the restrictionist side of immigration issues, but also some people who actually do encourage immigration and would not like to use the word alien, but also think non-citizen is not precise. There are some limits to what the administration can do when using certain terms in immigration. For example, if they're going to be referencing a statute or referencing laws, they will actually still have to use the term alien because legally that is the term that's used. Steph Guy covers immigration for Axios. The longer you're out of a job, the harder it is to find one. That's what millions of Americans are facing right now. And this is an especially vicious cycle because of the pandemic. Erica Pandy is a business reporter with Axios. Erica, economists actually have an official way to describe this, and it's long-term unemployment. Can you tell us what that means? Right, Alice. So that basically means that you've been out of a job for 27 weeks or more. So that's about six months or more. But you still are actively looking for work. About four million Americans right now fit into that category. And that's a really scary number because that's worse than it's been in seven years. And it's not at the Great Recession level of seven million, but it's still a really worrying number for the health of the U.S. economy. Erica, this might seem like an obvious question, but why is it harder to get work the longer you don't have a job? So one of the biases that hiring managers have is that if they see that you haven't had a job in a long time, they kind of assume that you won't be ready to get back into it. They do, you know, tend to look at you as someone who's not ready to take that role yet. And of course, people are doing this in the pandemic. How has that made all of this even worse? 
Right. That's why I decided to look into this story, because long-term unemployment has obviously been a dynamic for a long time. But the added pandemic really just adds more trauma to trauma. So, you know, people right now, your health insurance is linked to your job. So people don't have health insurance at a time where they need it most. They are having to look for new jobs, interview over Zoom. You might not be comfortable with that. You might be better in an in-person setting, or you might not even have the broadband to support that kind of job seeking. Erica, this is all pretty grim. With vaccination plans rolling out, do you see any silver linings when we're talking about the unemployment outlook? You know, I'm so glad you asked that, Nyla, because there is a bit of silver lining. I was talking to economists, and one of the worst things about losing your job is it can feel very personal. And the thing about a pandemic is that entire industries are laying off people. You might have lost your job, but all of your coworkers and your friends might have lost it too. And that kind of thing can really create a sense of camaraderie because we're all going through this together and there is a light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines and cities and states starting to reopen. You know, we're kind of rounding the corner a bit on this. Erica Pandy writes the At Work newsletter for Axios. Before we go today, we wanted to make sure you're up to speed on all the new dating lingo, like the term Fauci'd. It means cutting off a relationship if you don't think that that other person is serious enough about social distancing and taking the pandemic seriously. That's my colleague Margaret Taleb asking Dr. Fauci about this on HBO this week. I'm going to Fauci you. <laughs> there you go. Now you know, and I hope no one Fauci's you today. That's it for us. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter. My handle's at Nyla Boudou. If you'd like more news before tomorrow, tune into our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.